Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservations. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 93. Continuing on with our English antiquities, English antiques, um, all the great things that have happened and been made in England in the last, say, 700 years, and have been set out to the world to see their mastering mastering of craftsmanship and design, the melding of that as one and how the designers and periods have tended to create these things. So so we, we moved on from the last uh, episode of Furniture, and now, obviously, uh, with me, we're going to move on to clocks, okay? One of the greatest things the English have ever lent to the art, as an art craft form, and scientific form foremost, sorry. So clocks, episode 93, English English Antiquity. Although we have no documentary evidence, it is reasonable to suppose that primitive man divided time into the simple units of darkness and light. The year, an equally simple division based on such key events as seed planting, harvesting, migration of food animals, and the like. The earliest method of telling time was by no means of a sundial. The earliest recorded forms which were used by the ancient Egyptians. They also used a clepsydra, a water clock, which measured time by the quantity of water discharged through a small opening in the body of the clepsydra. Also in use is about the same time was the sand glass, the equivalent to our modern-day egg timer. For some 2,000 years, These three forms were the only means of telling time. Although there were no detailed written records of the first mechanical clock, it is safe to assume that it was well established before 1350. In fact, Giovanni di Dondi of Padua described a planetarium operated by clockwork, which he made during that period from 1346 to 1364. Further, 14th century records tend to accept the clock as a commonplace object. So far as the actual timekeeping qualities of these early clocks are concerned, they were no real improvement. In fact, it was necessary to check daily against a sundial. At this period, the clock was used to announce the times of the masses. It is probable that such clocks had a primitive form of alarm to to signal the ringing of a bell by a sacrilegious by a sacrilegious hint clocks were naturally built for secular purposes and usually were housed in a town hall or a specially built tower needless to say there was great prestige in processing a town clock some of these clocks told more than just time They indicated the position of the heavenly bodies and the important days in the church calendar. The oldest known clock of the period in England is at the Salisbury Cathedral, 1386. I've seen it several times. I wish everyone would go that loves horology, and it must be be on the, the stop of your grand tour, which was reconstructed to very near its original form in 1956. It is natural to expect that as soon as the tower turret clock had been established, that there would rise a need for smaller versions. This, in fact, happened in the 15th century. It is interesting to note that 
Up to this time, clockmaking was an aspect of the blacksmith's craft. But with the need for much smaller components, it became a craft of the locksmith. The domestic clock was weight-driven like its larger counterpart and showed no great difference in its mechanism. It was, it was usual to add an extra wheel to each train to enable the clock to run with a proportionally shorter fall of the weight so that the clock could hang on the wall at a convenient height for its dial to be seen. In the case of turret clocks, the weights would run down a tower and it was not of great importance to limit their fall. Even so, the early domestic clocks would need winding every 12 to 15 hours. The accuracy of the clock would have been shown no improvement over the larger predecessor. The weight-driven chamber clock appeared about the end of the 14th century and was made with little modification until the mid-17th century. France, Germany, and Italy produced the best-known examples. Another country, such as Switzerland, also made these clocks, but not in such great numbers. Some of these early clocks were fitted with alarms that would be useful to arouse their owners from a deep sleep. The clocks were not readily portable and would therefore have to be hung in the bedchamber wall, which limited their influences and usefulness during the day. By this time, the fashion of sleeping in a separate room would have become the accepted practice, and a portable timekeeper would have been extremely useful. The main difficulty was the weight drive. The problem was solved by using a steel-coiled spring as mode of power instead of a weight. It was formally believed that the spring came to, into its own about the year 1500, but is now put as early as 1407. There were two main difficulties in the application of the mainspring. The first was the making of the spring itself. In those days, steel was only capable of being produced in small quantities, and the quantity could not be guaranteed throughout the, the length of the spring. The second difficulty was that the spring exerted, exerts a greater force when it is wound up than when it is nearly wound down. And with the verge escapement, this is fatal for timekeeping. It was necessary, therefore, to provide some device to equalize the pull of the spring to get as nearly as possible a constant driving motive force. This was done by means of a fusée. The spring-driven clock was intended to stand on a table, and as it would be near to the person who wished to look at it, it was possible to make the dial smaller than before. As time went on, smaller clocks began to be made, and by the 16th century, they were small enough to be carried on the person themselves, and so the watch was born. Table clocks could be divided broadly into two groups, those with vertical and those with horizontal dials. The horizontal dial group developed in the early into watches as the 16th century progressed table clocks acquired astronomical and other subsidiary dials. France, Germany, and Italy applied the bulk of these clocks. Augsburg and Nuremberg became celebrated for their clocks. The table clock marked a definite break with tradition in that the mechanism became boxed. For example, the clock had a case. 
The early wall clocks consisted simply of the mechanism with a little decoration and the movement of the wheels could be seen. As far as can be ascertained, there were no British craftsmen capable of making a clock until the late 16th century. If any church or town desired a clock, the workmen had to come from abroad. Edward III granted a charter of protection of three horlogers in 16 or in, I'm sorry in 1368. One of them coming from Delft, and they all allowed were allowed to exercise their craft in the realm. They probably worked on clocks for the king at Westminster, Queensborough, and Langley about this period. And the clocks at Salisbury and Wells have also been attributed to them. Repairs of clocks were known in Britain from the Middle Ages, and references to them all seemed to indicate that they were working on turret clocks, but it was doubtful if any of them were ever English. For instance, there is a reference to a Roger the clockmaker being sent from Barnstable when Exeter Cathedral clock broke and needed repair in 1424, and the clockmaker of Colchester repaired a clock for the Duke of Norfolk in 1483. The word make was at, at a time synonymous the word mend, so it cannot be assumed that these clockmakers actually made clocks or did anything else than repair or remain or maintain the existing clocks. Henry VIII possessed a number of clocks and watches, all of which must have been important for, imported from the continent or made by visiting workmen. Elizabeth I also owned many clocks and watches and had her own clockmaker in the person of Nicholas Yersai, who was of French descent. But her clock keeper was Bartholomew Newsom, who received the office of clock the office of clockmaker in 1590, on the death of Yersau, and thus became the first English royal clockmaker. Newsom is believed to have been a Yorkshireman. Mention should also be made of Randolph Bull, who made the clockwork for Thomas Dolman's organ, which was presented by. Queen Elizabeth I to the Sultan of Turkey in 1599. Bull later became royal clockmaker. Other names of British clockmakers began to appear about this time, indicating the prestige of the establishment of the craft. The style that emerged is popularly known as lantern clocks, but also is known as Cromwellian, Cromwellian or bedpost clocks by various other names. Late examples in which the dial is much wider than the movement are called sheep's head clocks. The movement of these clocks was basically the weight-driven wall clock of the continent, but most of the metal used was brass and the clock was generally not placed so high. A wheel balance was always used. So far as no evidence has been forthcoming of an English lantern clock with a folio, the design would not allow for this, and the bell was not very far from the top plate of the movement, and was flanked on three sides by frets, which would have been rendered by, with the adjustment of the small weights, and it would have made this very difficult. Regulation of the lantern clock would always have been carried out by increasing or decreasing the amount of lead shot carried in a hollow on top of the going weight and thereby altering the amount of driving force available. The lantern clock had a very long life. It began in the reign of Elizabeth I 
and continued to be made until that of George III, although by this time it was only being made in the provenances. The lantern clock at first had a narrow chapter ring with stumpy figures. The hour hand was of a sturdy construction to permit <coughs> to permit of its being set to the right time, and the inner edge of the chapter ring was engraved with quarter marks to allow the time to be read with greater accuracy. As the 17th century progressed, the dials became larger and the figures longer, and after the invention of the pendulum, minute hands were added. Smaller versions with an alarm only and no striking work were produced for traveling purposes. The popularity of the style lasted until long after they had ceased to be made as a regular item of the clockmaker's output. During the 19th century, many old clocks had their movements replaced by contemporary spring-driven ones and were adapted for standing on the mantelpiece, which is quite, a, <coughs> which is, is quite out of timekeeping with this type of style. Later still, small versions of platform escapements were sold for the use on desk and bedside tables. Any clocks produced in Britain before around 1600 had been made by foreigners, but as the native town had developed the desire, it arose to eliminate competition from continental craftsmen. And accordingly, the king was petitioned to establish a guild for the regulation of the clockmaker's craft in London. In 1631, the Clockmakers' Company was incorporated, and previously to this, most <clears throat> to this, most of the clockmakers had belonged to the Blacksmiths' Company. The Clockmakers' Company controlled the training of future members of the craft, carefully limiting their numbers so that the market should not be flooded with clocks. But in spite of this, London clockmakers were often guilty of having too many apprentices and were accordingly fined. The officers of the company also had the right to search premises with a constable if they were suspected that watches and clocks of poor quality were to be found there on their site. And if such things were found, the company had no right to order their destruction. By the middle of the 17th century, clockmaking had reached a comparatively high standard. Table clocks were being made with various astronomical indicators, and their movements included parts made by brass that were finely made. The weight-driven wall clock became refined to a lantern clock in England and in other countries. It was subjected to improvements in new forms and decorations. The only disadvantages was that all instruments of this period were shocking timekeepers. Errors of, the, of a quarter of an hour to an hour every day could be expected, and, and a clock that gained one day might lose the next. Great efforts were made to correct this, the most successful being the pendulum in 1656. The Italian scientist Galileo, 1564-1642, is reputed to have noticed that the swinging lamps in the cathedral at Pisa took the same time to perform each swing, whether swinging a wide or a narrow arc. So hence, precision timekeeping began to happen. Near the end of his life, he dictated to his son a description of the timekeeper controlled by a pendulum. The son began work on a model of this timekeeper, but left it incomplete at his death in 1649. 
a German clockmaker, Johann Philippe Treff, was also thinking of a pendulum as a time measurer and made a clock for the Medici Palace in Florence. The name that will always be associated with the use of the pendulum to control a clock that is of Christian Huygens, 1629 through 95. The Dutch physicist Huygens made his experimental model on Christmas Day of 1656 and obtained a patent in 1657. He commissioned a clockmaker in The Hague, Solomon Coster, to produce the clocks, and Coster turned out some excellent work incorporating the new principle of the pendulum. The early pendulum clocks broke completely new ground in clock design. These clocks were far from ahead of their time that until recently made many people regard them as Victorian. Most noticeable outwardly was the use of a wooden case, which was almost unknown at the time, while internally there was a pendulum itself and also the use of a direct drive from the mainspring without the use of a fusee. Apparently, such confidence was felt in the new controller that it was considered necessary to modify the force of the mainspring. The movement was virtually that of a table clock turned on its side, while the pendulum was very short, as the verge escapement was retained involving the pendulum swing involving the pendulum swinging through the wide arc. It was now at last a worthwhile to fit a hand indicating the time. So for years before this, there was never any hands put in, just listening for the bell. As soon as the invention of the pendulum became known in England, John Fromantiel, a member of the family of clockmakers of Dutch descent, living in London, went to work for Coster to learn how the new sort of clock was made. An invent an invention that brought the accuracy of a clock within a few minutes per day was something that would be eagerly sought and celebrated after by every clockmaker. By 1658, the making of pendulum clocks was being advertised in the Commonwealth Mercury by Anne Harris Fromantiel, another member of the family. The introduction of the pendulum into clockwork marked the beginning of the period of almost two centuries during which the London makers would lead the world in craftsmanship and scientific invention. Not into the mid-18th century, when the London makers refused to move with their times, that was, this, <laughs> that was supremely lost. The restoration of the monarchy in 1660 meant the end of the period of austerity enforced by the Commonwealth, and the people were, all <laughs> were ready to spend money to refurbish their homes in the latest style. We find this at the period of the architectural designs in ebony were the fashion for clock cases, and British makers quickly abandoned two or the main features of the Dutch clocks. They connected the pendulum directly to the verge, doing away with the separate mechanism and the clocks in the, <coughs> in the blow, and they also did away with the velvet ground in the dial, preferring matted brass or later plain brass engraved and spindles made of cast brass applied separately. Development in the late 17th century was rapid. The severely architectural styles of the 60s evolved into the basket top of the 1680s. Ebony remained a favorite wood for cases, but clocks tended to get smaller, I'm sorry, to get taller as the century progressed and movements became technologically more refined. No record of this period would be complete without mentioning the name of Thomas Tompion. 
He acquired the title of the father of English watchmaking and was bur- and is buried at Westminster Abbey. 6,550 clocks were made by Thomas Tompion's shop by him that have been listed, which means that he could still not have <laughs> made them all without his own hands. Such production could not be achieved without a large staff of skilled workmen and is perhaps as the first production engineer rather than as an horologist that Tom Tompion sought to be remembered. Rumor has it that he established a workshop in Aldgate outside the city limits in order to escape the jurisdiction of the clockmaker's company. His official premises and residence was near Water Lane, Black Forest, near Fleet Street. Neither Tompion nor any of his contemporaries made their own dials or even cases. Each was being provided by skilled engravers or cabinet makers and furniture makers. The name of the clockmaker on the dial indicated the man who supervised the production of the clock and not the man who actually made it. As time progressed, we find specialist workshops producing movements for more than one celebrated maker who would willingly put his name on the dial as if the, <clears throat> as if the work had been his alone. He took the responsibility for the finished article, but was maker of his own is is maker of his name only. That's all he was responsible for putting on. The usual English name for spring clocks, pendulum clocks of the 17th century and 18th century was called bracket clocks. These clocks were not usually placed on brackets, which implies a permanent home, but they were rather intended to be carried from room to room and were even provided with a carrying handle for this purpose. Many of these clocks had no striking mechanism, but were provided with a a cord which could be pulled to make the clock repeat hours and quarters. A very useful feature when the clock stopped on the bedside table during the night, the term table clock would be far more appropriate for these clocks, But but it has already been used for the earlier material case clocks, so bracket clock will have to stand the test of time now. The advent of the pendulum not only led to the development of the spring clock at first, created by Coster, but also produced an entirely new design of clock. The old clocks with folio and wheel balance would have needed winding every 12 to 15 hours. At the same time, it would be necessary to regulate them every day after comparison with the sundial. Most public clocks had a sundial nearby for this purpose. After the clock had been made so accurate that the daily regulation was no longer necessary. There was an incentive to prolong the intervals between winding. Spring-driven pendulum clocks in their early days were made to run for one day, then two or three or more, and finally they were made to be eight days between windings. So during the early years of the reign of Charles II, clockmakers evolved a new type of clock which would run for eight total days. The movement was generally similar to that of the spring clock, except for the drive motive was by weights supported by catgut lines which were wound around brass barrels. And the clock was wound by means of a key through the dial, as were the spring clocks. The short pendulum was retained as the verge and was still only with available escapement. The ebony architectural case was provided but the clock was intended to be hung on the wall. The Dutch spring clocks were usually 
<clears throat> were usually provided with means for hanging them on the wall as well as feet for standing on the table. But spring clocks in England were seldom seen in this feature. The exposed weights of the new type of clock were provided with polished brass containers, but even so they were considered unsightly and clocks were produced with a long, tall cupboard below them to hide the weights out of view. The next stop was to make the cupboard and the top into a freestanding unit called the long case clock. The earliest were quite small, but being only about five feet high, and the ebony architecture style was used for this case. The Fromentiel family was associated with this type of in the early days. The movements were closely allied with the pendulum. Controlled spring clocks, which were being produced and which were direct descendants of the table clocks. The long case clocks is therefore more closely connected to the table clock than with the weight-driven wall clock. The advantages of a longer pendulum were being considered at this period, as it would be more capable of receiving fine adjustment in length, and therefore the regulation of the clock would be more exact. By having fewer beats per hour, fewer teeth would be necessary in the wheels, and thereby saving labor. There has been a lot of discussion on the subject of whether Robert Hooke or William Clement, a London clockmaker, was the inventor of the anchor escapement. A very strong point in Clement's favor is that he was originally an anchor smith, and the shape of his as anchors on which he worked no doubt suggested the escapement as well as making clocks with a pendulum five feet long beating one second and a quarter. These early clocks had cases very little larger than the short pendulums type themselves. But as the century progressed, there was a tendency for the long case clock to get bigger and bigger, especially when examples were produced which ran for one, three, or even six months between windings. The earliest clocks with a very special long period of running were made three were made by Tompion in 1676 for the Greenwich Observatory. These clocks were intended to be wound only once a year. The long case clock rapidly became popular after the invention of the anchor escapement. The cases at first had an ebony finish and later marquetry and parquetry became popular. While in the 18th century, lacquered cases also became fashionable. In the early part of the same century, walnut also occurs, and once market mahogany had established itself in popularity, it lasted until the end of the English long-case clock into the 19th century. The lantern clock was still being made in the 18th century, but many movements of the London type were also being produced with square brass dials intended to be covered by a hood and hung on the wall or else to be fitted in a country version of the long case. Once in, <clears throat> one encounters many of these one-handed clocks in a variety of cases, not always pleasing to the eye, and in some, many cases, a, a minute hand has also been added. This can always be detected when the old dial is retained, for the original dial has quarter-hour mar marks, the hour figures, and no minute marks outside of them. Some of these clocks have movements with the, the wheels held between the two brass plates and on the eight-day clocks, but they are still to be considered as belonging to the lantern family. In their final form, down to about 1850, they were produced in Birmingham 
with the unusual paint iron dials found on the 19th century clocks. By this time, most of the eight-day movements and dials were being produced there, with the name of the vendor painted on the dial to order, and the cases would be made to the order of the purchaser in his own locality. As the long case clock increased in size, the dial tended to increase too, beginning with the size of about nine inches square immediately after the re restoration. Dials had increased to 12 inches square by about 1690. And early in the 18th century, an arch was painted above the square dial. Early arches were made separately, but soon the dial and arch were being made for <laughs> all in one piece. One of the earliest arch dials to be found on the Tompion clock is in the pump house at Bath. Dials at this period were made of sheet brass and with silver chapter rings and cast spandrels fitted separately. But as the 18th century progressed, some dials were made with the figures engraved directly on the dial itself, or else the dial was silvered all over of these figures, which were indicated in black. This may lead the way to the painted iron dial characteristic of the late 18th and 19th centuries. As soon as the, the arch was added to the dial, it became a space that needed filling. Sometimes a plaque with the, banker's na or the maker's name and place of business was put there, or a strike silent hand could occupy that position. After about 1730, the phase of the, of the moon indicated by a disc bearing two moons that rotated once in two lunations, two years, and this neatly filled the space on the arch. The square dial was mostly used on the 30-hour lantern-type movements, but had a longer life on eight-day clocks in Lancashire and Wales, where it would sometimes include moon phases in, an opening below, <coughs> in the opening below of the arch. To know the, moon, to know the phase of the moon, was of great importance in the 18th century, as only at the time of the full moon was it possible to go out at night and go to your neighbors, go to church, go to a store. Moon dials were often include an indicator to show high tide at a certain port point, but this has to be specially calibrated for the place in question and is of no use any elsewhere. The day of the month was also indicated at first by a figure showing through a square opening Above, figure, uh, <coughs> above the figural paintings in the top of the clock dial. Later, a dial was placed here, or a kidney-shaped slot allowed figures on the disc to be visible. The second's hand passed below and goes back to the early days when the anchor escapement for, with a pendulum beating seconds and a second wheel or 30 teeth or the division of the minute can be divided on the dial with very, very little trouble. The eighth-day clock is recognizable at a glance by the windowing holes in the dial. But even this can prove a, a trap for the unwary. Less unfortunate people who cannot afford an eight-day clock would sometimes have else <coughs> false winding holes painted on the dial of their clock to give the impression that it was an eight-day clock, one, <coughs> one when in fact it was only a 30-hour clock and would be wormed by pulling the chain, or wound rather, by pulling the chain and rope inside of the trunk. The long case clock became particularly associated with England. The only other country that it took it seriously was Holland, and tradition was still strong enough to keep it popular in the United States.
So after 1776, although Native American styles drove it off the market there before it had disappeared in England, and in the latter country, its popularity in London waned during in the later part of the 18th century. But it was still popular in the provinces, particularly in the north, and the mill owners made rich by the Industrial Revolution always desired the flamboyant styles for their homes, helping to create distinctive types for Lancashire and Yorkshire. As the 18th century gave way to the 19th, the, the type that was called popular for many years in Wales and Scotland. So, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing off. And uh, thanks for listening to uh, English Antiquities hyphen clocks.